This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Good morning, dear God Firsters and guests with us this morning. Maybe you're visiting for the first time. You still consider yourself a bit of a visitor. Lovely, lovely to have you with us. Uh, As stated, my name is Christopher. I'm one of the leaders here at the church. We are going to continue uh, our worship this morning by opening the scriptures. I mean, we know that worship isn't just singing songs. It's all of life. And so we're going to continue And um, we're going to ask God to open our hearts and speak and lead and guide and encourage and strengthen us as we do so. One of the uh, very first uh, training exercises I ever did when I was in uh, in my time in the military was a a sea survival exercise. And it sounds lovely, it's not. We were dropped in, uh, in the ocean Uh, A couple of miles off, we couldn't see the land, and we had to just float. Um, Float until uh, the first people started getting hypothermia, then they'd sort of pull everybody out uh, as you get hypothermic. Then when the last people were about, were still in the water, they threw all of us back in. We had to huddle together to see, does it help huddling? Does it help when you weed together in the huddle? It doesn't. 10 degree water is 10 degree water. It's very cold. And then after we were all hypothermic, they threw us uh, these 10 person life rafts for the 34 of us. Okay, you do the math. 27 hours on these uh, 10 person life rafts with uh, no food, no water. Just the odors of uh, 17 wet and smelly teenage men and women uh, to keep us company, as well as the need to find creative solutions of going to the toilet uh, when you're on a floating raft for 27 hours. So, fun was had. We then spent a spectacular four days and nights on an island where we had to uh, forage for food, and water, and we slept in a cave. Sounds glorious, until I say we had to spoon 10 of us like this, little sardines, to keep warm at night. And again, that sounds half decent until you realize when one person says, listen, my hip is sore, we've got to turn over. The whole (laughs) row of us has to turn over. Again, needless to say, not much sleep was had during this wonderful week of ours. And the point of it, the point of this horrible exercise is to teach your body and your mind and your emotions that you can actually go further and be pushed harder and deal with more hardship and suffering than you think you can. The point is to persevere through whatever comes your way until the job is done. The effect is that next time, 
you go through something like that, whether it be real, because you uh, train hard, fight hard. The point is that next time you go through something like that, you are just going to be more comfortable, more at ease, and you're going to be able to push yourself further to achieve the goals that are required. Now, we're going to continue our series in the book of Acts. Last week, we just had a bit of a New Year sermon, so you didn't miss anything particularly. We're continuing our series through the book of Acts, and we're in chapter 14 this morning, which has as one of its main themes the topic of perseverance. So let's start together in verse 1. At Iconium... Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. And if I could just get the map up behind me. So this is the sort of first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas set out from Antioch in Syria uh, through Seleucia. They came around Cyprus. They landed at what's modern-day Antalya in Turkey went up through Pergae, up to Iconium, and then their journey takes them uh, down to Lystra, Derby, and back again. So that all happens in uh, modern-day Turkey. That Galatia, just as a matter of interest, is then when Paul writes the letter to the Galatians, he's not writing to a church in Galatia, or, you know, if you think uh, the, the church in Corinthians, when he writes the letter, is actually to a specific church. All of the churches in Galatia, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, um, Antioch in Pisidia, they're all part of the Galatian churches, and they would have received this letter. So this is the sort of scene that Paul and Barnabas are heading out on. And if you think in Acts 1.8, Jesus says to the disciples, I'll give you my spirit that you would be witnesses and Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. By this point in the story of Acts, we've seen Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now increasingly the ends of the known world being reached with the gospel. So this is exciting times. And the fact that Iconium has a synagogue means that there were at least 10 Jewish men living in the city. In order to qualify for a synagogue, you had to have 10 Jewish men living there. And Paul and Barnabas uh, continued their, their practice, their custom of going and preaching first and speaking first and engaging with the brothers and sisters at the synagogue. They're their people. It's obviously a bit of a security, safety net, but it's also they, they still love, even though they understand they've got a, a mandate to the Gentiles, Paul and Barnabas start by preaching the good news to them. And he preaches that the Jewish Messiah had in fact now come. His name is Jesus. And the good news is that he is the Savior. He's come to save his people, the Jews, as well as the Savior of the unbelieving Greek Gentiles. And so we read that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed, which is just wonderful to read. And honestly, it gives us faith. When we read something like that, it can just prompt our faith to think the gospel, the message of Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension into glory, forgiveness we have in him. 
adoption as sons and daughters, all the wonderful messages of the gospel is powerful to change hearts and lives. Yes? So at this point, I'd forgive you for thinking, listen, why on earth are we talking about perseverance? Overrated. Easy peasy, right? They preach salvation. Hooray. Well, verse 2. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Oh, dear. So at this point, no matter whether you consider yourself a follower of Jesus yet or you're exploring, we all understand the pain of this one. People talking badly about you behind your back, people poisoning your friends, poisoning the friends you'd like to have against you, possibly even stirring them up to action against you. If you're at school right now or at uni, this is probably a real deal for many of you. This stings. This hurts. And kids can be ruthless. We know that. But so can adults. <laughs> and even though we live with a sense of sticks and stones may hurt my bones, actually it does hurt. It does hurt. And if this happened and, and you were at a football team or something and there was another one down the road, you just pack up, say, thanks, had enough, and move to the next team. But if you're in a school or in a uni or in a work situ uh, situation, you can't just pack up and go. You've got to stick it out. You've got to face it on a day-to-day -day basis. Hmm, maybe there is something to this learning to persevere after all. So let's read on to see what happens next. So, Paul and Barnabas, because of these great afflictions and difficulties, packed their bags and left for home. Is that what it says? Oh, no, no, it's not what it says. Sorry. It says, so Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there. What? Speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of His grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Yep, no surprises. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles, and there was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to ill-treat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lycaonian cities of Lystra and Derbe, and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. So we see Paul and Barnabas persevered under this great strain. And they lived and preached their followership of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And the city becomes divided as we, we can expect. Because change is afoot in the lives and hearts of people. And the Jews, or the unbelieving Jews and the Greeks hatch a plan to do them ill and to stone them. And this is the, a, a, a bit of a balancing act because they're full of faith, but they're not reckless with their lives. 
So when the, when the benefits of staying to preach the gospel are outweighed by the dangers of staying, they wisely take a step sideways and move on. They go on to Lystra, where they do what? They continue to preach the gospel. If you've been a believer for any amount of time, you'll know that our discipleship, our followership of Jesus, our internal deep heart and character work of becoming more like Jesus and increasingly doing the things that Jesus did, it takes what? It takes time, perseverance as well, but time. It takes time and time and time. I know with other people, you think, why, why don't you just get it? But with ourselves, we're really, we're really gracious, aren't we? Maybe it's just me. But it takes time. And it takes time helping other people when you're discipling them into more of the character in the life of Jesus. It takes time. And the courageous perseverance of Paul and Barnabas in the face of this great cultural pressure in Iconium was for the sake of making disciples, which was exactly what Jesus had told them to do. Go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. And they needed to have as much time as they possibly could with every disciple that wanted to follow Jesus. And they needed this time to bond these people into little churches, fledgling groups of disciples that must survive under the extreme cultural pressures. And we might not feel like we're fighting for such high stakes. You know, when you hear these stories, you think, that's their world, this is now. But I think we'd be mistaken if we think we are fighting for any less high stakes. This church, God First, the churches in Cheltenham, in the UK, in Europe, around the world, are one generation away from vanishing. One generation. Think about that. If the parents in this room, if we aren't able to by the grace of God, disciple our children how to wisely navigate the cultural and social pressures of the world that they live in and help them build their lives on the foundation of Jesus. And if we aren't able to disciple them to be disciple makers, the church ends with them. Wow. Wow. That's a bit overly dramatic. Yeah, maybe. But thankfully, the church has always been one generation away from total death. It's always been the situation. And disciples of Jesus, men and women who follow him, have always stepped up to the discipleship call, just like Paul and Barnabas. So although the stakes are exceedingly high, and we need to understand that, grasp that. We also travel a well-trodden path of godly men and women who've gone before us, who've done it, 
who've lived it, walked a life of faith and obedience. So let's read on, verse 8. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He'd been that, that way from birth and had never walked. And he listened to Paul as he was speaking. And then Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, stand up on your feet. At that moment, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lycaonian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. Whoa! This is an absolutely fascinating passage. I don't know about you. Chapter 14 in Acts is kind of one of, one of those one, two, skip a few, let's get to the interesting bits. It's not one of those ones that we spend a lot of time in unless we do what we're doing now. So I love this story. Paul and Barnabas enter Lystra, and they don't go to the synagogue first. Why do you think that is? Because there aren't more than 10 Jews in the city. And this is significant. This is the first time that Paul and Barnabas enter a city that has next to zero Jewish background or scriptural understanding. And this is pretty much as close to the modern-day UK and Europe as we've ever been since about the 500s. I mean, when we think modern-day UK, modern-day Europe, think Lystra. Okay, there's a big disconnect between the worldview of the people that we know at school and at uni and at work and the biblical worldview that we know to be true. And we read the account of Paul healing this lame man from birth, and it's remarkably similar to the account of Peter and John in Jerusalem, isn't it? Which, is that, is that an accident? I don't think so. And as we saw in Iconium as well, God uses signs and wonders here in Lystra as, as a signpost to authenticate the message of these apostles of of Peter, uh, of Paul and, um, and Barnabas, that the God of the Bible is the one true God. And that his son Jesus, God made to be Savior for all mankind. Not just for Jews, but for everyone. And as a demonstration that this is true, the Holy Spirit comes in power. We see these miracles happening and the Holy Spirit is this proof of a deposit which seals people for God and as God's people. So all of these things are happening. So no perseverance seems no perseverance seems to be required right now. In fact, things seem to be going crazy good. There's no hardships to be seen here. People saw the signs, and they were responding, but clearly they read the signs wrong. People are running around trying to find animals to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. 
because they're sure that they are the Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes, that have been reincarnated or come down in the flesh. Now, just to make sense of this reaction, okay, because it doesn't just make why, why Hermes and Zeus, there was in that area of Lystra a myth that said, in time past, Zeus and Hermes had come to Lystra and had walked around as beggars, disguised themselves as beggars, and they knocked on every door asking to be let in for food and for shelter. And people turned them away time and time and time again until they found an old lady's house. The lady let them in, fed them, let them sleep there. They blessed the house. The house became Mount, uh, what's it called? Mount Olympus or something like that. And every other house that had turned them down, they destroyed and killed everybody in it. The end. So... No surprise, when the people saw these powerful signs done by Paul and Barnabas, assuming naturally that these then are Zeus and Hermes, returned to Lystra, again on with their tricks, and this time they're not going to be caught unawares, they're going to recognize them as the gods that they are, and worship them, and sacrifice to them, so that the city will remain intact. Makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I think this is a, a, clearly a big moment for Paul and Barnabas in their, in their story and their engagement with culture and with the people around them. And I wonder if it doesn't speak a little bit into our time and challenges right now. The church loves doing good things, and we're known for being fighters for justice and again against injustice for those who are unable to fight for themselves. And I think because of this, for all of us in the church, there's an easy slip that can happen where we increasingly can align ourselves, even just in part with the agenda, the liberal agenda, shall I say, that the culture around us has. Liberal culture fights for justice for all. And so often does the church. So we kind of think, okay, yeah, there's a bit of synergy there. So, so people in the church feel, yeah, I can step towards that and engage with that. But liberal culture is fighting for the rights of women, yes. By trying to disempower men, boo. So now we go like, okay, that's probably not healthy. But maybe there's something in that and we kind of engage a little bit, wrestle. Liberal culture is fighting to kind of redefine gender and marriage and truth. And all of a sudden, you found you've slipped down to the point where, man, I'm encountering something here I completely disagree with, but I'm in it. So what do we do? From a distance, we can look quite similar, the church and the world, at times. And if our desire is to be accepted, 
and embraced by our school friends or our uni friends or our work colleagues and our more liberal friends, it's somewhat easy for us as Christians to try and be defined as justice warriors, fighting for the rights of people and, and like making that the big deal. And it can feel quite attractive because it encompasses, it carries in it elements of truth, elements of real, genuine Christianity, whilst allowing us to feel part of the cultural story around us. I hope I'm not losing you. I'm trying to be careful with my words. And you can quite easily find yourself with one foot in the church, loving it and enjoying the benefits of it, and the other foot in our liberal culture, trying to fit in and find the benefits of that. If you're part of the younger generation here, this is, I think, a particular challenge for you. You might think, hey, it's just a bit of kind of harmless fun. You know, I'm just fitting in. I'm just getting by. I'll take Jesus seriously when I've finished school, finished uni, gotten a job, gotten married, had kids. Uh, in my old age, when I'm on my deathbed, we kind of put it there, taking Jesus seriously, living for him, living in all the good and blessing that he has for us. I think this is partly, I think, one of the opportunities and wrestles that Paul and Barnabas had in front of them at that moment. They were embraced by the Greek culture, ready to sacrifice bulls to them. I mean, they were loved. And the temptation to just go with it could have been extreme. One foot in the Jesus world, yeah, church community, G1Cs, youth, and one foot in the Greek world, sex parties, rock and roll, fun. What a challenge. Let's see how they responded. Verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you the good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provided you with plenty of food, fills your heart with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowds from sacrificing to them. I love Paul and Barnabas' reaction. No compromise. So not understanding the local language, it took them a while to figure out what's going on. But the moment they got it, man, these guys are starting to deify us. They did what every Jewish person by law had to do when they spotted heresy, which was to tear their clothes, throw ash on their head. And that's 
exactly what they do. They tear their clothes and respond quickly. And they preach a great sermon, contextualized very cleverly to this specific Greek town or audience in Lystra. And in two weeks' time, when we look at Acts 17 and Paul in Athens, we're going to spend a bit more time looking at contextualizing the gospel and the message and the truths of the gospel. We're going to have a bit of fun there, so don't miss that one either. But suffice it to say at this point that Paul's speech goes against the idea that that was so prominent in Greek philosophical thinking and is so prominent here today in our culture that everybody has their own truth and that everyone's truth is equally true. Have you heard that? Yeah. And he says to them, turn from these worthless things, these wrong things, these wrong belief systems, turn from them to the living God. There is only one truth, and his name is Jesus Christ. Again, if you're a young person, try and spend as much time and energy as you can learning about the one truth in Jesus, because this is such a major area of pressure for you at school and university. But hey, all in all, theme, uh, things again seem to be going pretty well. People literally wanting to sacrifice to them as gods. So uh, not sure where the need to persevere in this situation comes in. So let's read on. Verse 19. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up, went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derbe. Wow. We did not see that coming. So from wanting to venerate them as gods to stoning him to death in 0,5 verses. What happened there? There's a part of us that's not surprised because we know how fickle, how changeable hearts are, people are, how easy it is to sway them. After all, it was only one week from Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey to the throngs, the crowds, worshiping him, waving palm leaves, shouting, Hosanna to the king, for the same crowd to be shouting, crucify him, one week. If your emotional stability and joy and identity is found more in what people think of you or what you think of yourself than what Jesus says about you, remember this. Today, people will love you as you go about your Christian life, and tomorrow they will hate you. Cultural fads will come and will go almost as quickly as they come. People come and go, and neither culture nor people can define you. You may at times be loved to the point of people 
uh, to the point of people's love becoming an idol in your life that you will do anything to keep, yeah? And then there will be times where you are hated to the point that you will do anything just to get some love and affection and attention again. Both of these. Highway to the danger zone. The gospel, the good news, that Jesus lived and died in our place for our sin, set us free, offers forgiveness, grace, mercy, and that he is not dead, it's an empty grave. He is alive, resurrected in glory above all things. He is the only foundation that perseverance can be built on. Being known and loved by Jesus is meant to be a blessing that fortifies us against these ebbs and these flows, these high water marks and low water marks in our life as people and culture and their fickleness and their change happens around us. Jesus is constant. And he warns us as his followers. He says, in this life, there will be troubles. Jesus was hated because he was the Messiah they needed, but not the one they wanted. That hasn't changed. He is still the Messiah they need, we all need, but not the one we want. It feels wrong to not earn our way there, but to receive it as a gift. Wow. What a God, what a Messiah, what a Savior. And it remains true that if they said that about Jesus and they hated Jesus, they will hate us at times. And this kind of opposition would be devastating to us if we were normal people. But we're not. Because we don't follow a normal man. We don't worship a normal man. One of the great benefits of miracles and signs and wonders that followed or that, that went with Paul and Barnabas and the apostles and many of us today have stories of this and know that God still works like this. These things prove that God is with us. He's with his people, that we are not alone. God the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, we're told in other places, was with them every step of the way. And this is why Jesus' people have and will always be different. We stand out as a light or a city on a hill beacon of hope for people, persevering against the odds because our supernatural God is with us. And perseverance, like Paul's, can handle the ups and the downs of life. And it comes from this ultimate certainty that he is loved. I love the songs that we sang this morning. We are loved by God. And it's a certainty that our God is with us 
and that our God has a plan for us. Because we just read, Paul gets stoned in Lystra. Do you know why stoning is such a common part of Jewish culture? Because it works. It kills people. Works. And we're not talking about pebbles in a pond. Oh. No, no. Stones that break bones, cut flesh open, trauma, major trauma. Stonings worked. Paul was there when Stephen got stoned to death. Remember that from a couple of months ago? Stephen died. People don't survive stonings. But somehow, Paul's friends gather around him. We don't tell what, we're not told what they did. Maybe they prayed. Maybe they just helped him up. I, who knows? Some people think God actually raised him from the dead and did a miracle in that moment. Others think maybe he just passed out or we just don't know. But either way, this is miraculous. And God defended Paul's life in this miraculous way. Was he hurt? Yeah, sure, I'm sure he was. But dead? No, not yet. Why not? Why was he not yet dead? Other than maybe the stones missed, or I don't know. He's not dead yet because God hadn't finished with him. God still had work for Paul to do. Paul knew when he was writing Ephesians 2, where he says, there are good works planned for us to do. If, you, uh, if he was still alive, I don't mean today, but the fact that he was still alive, the plan wasn't over. As long as he had breath in his lungs and he was still kicking, there was still good work for him to do. Dear friends, let's draw courage from this great point. Because if you are breathing right now, it means God has a good plan with you and He's not through. He has a plan, a purpose with your life. In a sense, you don't say this flippantly, but you are bulletproof until your ministry is complete. You are COVID-proof until your servanthood, followership of Jesus and His people loving them is complete. You are hater-proof until everything you've been called to do is complete. You are adoration-proof until your time comes. When um, Pontius Pilate says to Jesus before Jesus was crucified, hey, Jesus, why don't you defend yourself against these accusations about you? Don't you know I have the power to set you free or to crucify you? And Jesus responds, do you remember? He says, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Nothing that could ever happen in our life as followers of Jesus happens outside of his knowledge 
outside of his power and outside of his control. What did Paul do next with his bulletproofness? Let's read on. Verse 21. And they preached the gospel in that city. What? Crazy. They preached the gospel in that same city, in Derby, and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, where he'd been stoned, to Iconium, where they wanted to stone him and do him ill, and to Antioch in Pisidia, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. And Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they'd put their trust. Again, just if we could see that map, please. So they were down in Derby. Now the blue line, they make their way back up to Ant- all the way to Antioch, strengthening, encouraging praying for, appointing elders. This looks like Paul is persevering in the ministry that Jesus gave him to make disciples in all the world. And he went back through all of those cities, through all the people who hated him and the ones who wanted to sacrifice to him. And he went and strengthened them. And he strengthened these young, fledgling churches that had been planted. And he could have have encouraged them in any number of ways. Can you imagine that? Like Paul wrote Romans. Oh, the great high point of Protestant theology. He could have said anything. But what does he tell them? We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Therefore, Remain true to the faith. Remain true to Christ. Church, there are many, many exciting works that lie ahead for you, for the men and women of God, and the men and women of God first. Many great adventures in Christ. But the most important is to allow God to teach us, to train us, and to empower us to persevere towards Christ. Paul strengthened these young churches because church community, like the Spirit of God, fortifies us against the pressures of culture at school. Or at uni, hey, join the Christian union. Gather when you can. Encourage one another. At work, look for and support fellow believers. Prioritize Sundays. Allow us to connect you to small groups. Get in a three. These are all meant to be means of grace to us in our personal and corporate perseverance. Persevere. Persevere. Persevere in the obedient following of Jesus. Persevere in your ministry to Jesus and to his mission. But above all, persevere in the greatest joy which is found in Jesus himself. Persevere to find Jesus. Draw close to him, be near to him. Hebrews 10 just says something so helpful. 
It says, remember those earlier days after you'd received the light, when you persevered in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. You suffered because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Knowing and being with Jesus in this life and the next is a lasting and better possession that eclipses all others that we can highlight and exalt in our lives. He is our confidence and our great reward. And it's no, re- no wonder why Jesus gives us this great sacrament of communion, of breaking bread, eating his body and drinking his blood. It's another one of those moments where we can reflect. We reflect on the presence of Christ as our strength, our fortifier, our true hope. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.